Many attorneys dream of being trial lawyers, but few get to do it, especially as their career progresses. Jane Conroy, a name partner with Simmons Hanley Conroy, has tried more than 70 cases in 35 years, and she spent her entire career doing civil trials in private practice. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, she's going to be telling us how she got to the job she does now with centers on multi-district litigation and what it's been like along the way. Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a bit about the beginning of your career? I know one thing that I think is interesting with your background is you haven't been a prosecutor in AUSA. You've spent your entire career in civil litigation trying cases, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. I think part of that just became sometimes it's a little bit of luck in the way you get your first job and and where you get sent on those first few days as a lawyer. I started my career in Boston and I worked for a very small defense firm that had attracted some very big defense clients very early in the day, back in the 80s, with DES or diethylstilbestrol, which I didn't really know what it was when I started. I had a medical background. I had decided to go to try law school instead of medical school because I was all pre-med all the way. I don't know what that is either. Can you tell us? Diethystilbestrol was a drug that was given to women in the 1950s and a little bit in the early 60s to prevent miscarriage. And it was very interesting because it was not really determined whether it did prevent miscarriage, although many of the women that took the drug did ultimately carry their children first term, all the you know full term, but. When those daughters of those women reached puberty, they would have precancerous situations and sometimes cancer of their reproductive organs. It didn't appear to happen much with sons that were born, but it was a very unusual case, obviously a causation issue to go back and try to determine which there were about five to seven companies that made that drug. And so there was a lot of product identification, all paper records at the time, and then a very significant scientific question as to how could a drug taken by the mother affect a child 14 or 15 years after that child was, you know, the drug was only taken during pregnancy, so it was an in utero exposure. So very interesting first case that just dumped me into all of the things that I still do, massive product identification, talking to plaintiffs and understanding their stories, talking to scientists and experts, understanding the medicine, and then also understanding what to do in a case that conceivably is in every jurisdiction in the country and maybe is going to be in the thousands of plaintiffs, you know, which is, which is different than a car accident or a slip and fall case that can have many of the same attributes. But once you start to look at the scale of some of the larger, we call them mass torts now, they weren't even called that back then, but the scale really matters in the way a case is managed and handled. And it does give a lot of opportunity for the lawyers who are positioned in a place to actually have a role in those cases gives a lot of opportunity for 
taking testimony and developing liability stories and exhibits and reaching that, you know, all sorts of things, bankruptcies, and of course, bellwether trials, and even things uh, very complicated, but we don't talk about it very much, how to actually settle a case that's in many different states, in state court and federal court. How do you get releases from all of the plaintiffs? So there are lots of issues that came in, and I was just lucky enough very early in my career to work on a case like that, that, that brought in all of those issues. And, you know, I didn't really think much about it until much later in my career when I realized how lucky I had been that I had happened upon doing that sort of a case and learning so much that I could bring forward. Gotcha. What was your background in the medical profession? Well, I was a pre-med in college, biology major, and, you know, was thinking about Going, took the MCATs to think about going to med school and then decided to take a summer and work in a law office um, because that DES case had just come into a law office and my boss didn't know anything about science. So that's when I'm, and I, I started working and I, I didn't have any knowledge. I didn't know any lawyers. I was just fascinated by it. I, I just, I had no idea um, what lawyers did and how you could really pursue science and those types of issues while being a lawyer. Didn't even know it ha- didn't even know it could happen. <laughs> <laughs> so you got hired it sounds like as a researcher after you got your undergraduate yep. for the defense firm and then decided to go to law school while you were there? Yes, in fact I went to law school at night because the case was extremely active and there was a, a school in Boston that had night classes and I thought it was, again, just a tremendous benefit because I was able to stay on the case. I worked uh, full-time for the law firm while I was in school. I never want to do that again. It was pretty <laughs> pretty brutal, but it really allowed me to not only do the traditional law school route because it really was a traditional school, it just, just the classes were at night, but um, keep working in the law. So when I, when I, took the bar and was able to actually practice, I had already been to many, many depositions. I'd already been to court. I'd already seen significant summary judgment hearings and the like. So I had a leg up, I think. And I am thinking in your bio, you went to University of New England for law school, right? New England Law. Yes. New England Law School. New England Law. So I am curious. I know that there's certainly, I've talked to people before who worked at the law firm and went to law school at night and you stayed with the firm when you graduated, right? That's right. How did you go about getting them to see you as a lawyer and just maybe in your own mindset going from doing the research work and being staff to being a lawyer? Because sometimes I think making that transition is hard for people. I think it can be. And I, you know, it was a fairly small firm and I had been very involved and I was working as a paralegal and then moved to a, to a law clerk position. I don't know. It didn't seem that difficult to me because we were small and I was relied on, I guess, you know, you know how (laughs) paralegals, you really rely on paralegals. And so sometimes if you're a really good paralegal, and you become a lawyer, it's hard to get folks to stop giving you paralegal tasks, right? That's very true. But I think what I yeah. said 
throughout my career is you better ever you better never lose those talents because today even you know the kind of work we do and any trial lawyer will tell you this you have to know how to do everything you you can't rely on others to set things up for you or to i mean you can out of the sight of the jury but in front of the jury you better know what you're talking about and knowing what you're talking about might might just be as simple as knowing where the extension cord is because jurors are really bored and they watch everything and they want the person that's telling them what a case is about they they really need to trust that person and understand that they're not relying on somebody else that they're not hearing from so those paralegal skills have they still come in really handy well and i would think too having the experience of a paralegal is going to be helpful to you as a lawyer to know the, the file backward and forward. That's true. And, you know, I think it's something that we, even younger lawyers that work in firms that try cases have, have recognized that the way to go forward is to really understand the file, to really know what's going on, and that no job is too menial to understand how it works. All of those things are, are really important when you are trying to build a team, and that's what we do, we build teams to go and try cases. It's never just one person that's that's doing all the work. It's really important that everybody understands the value that everybody brings to the case. And, you know, I'll tell you, and anyone that tries cases, you know, if the printer's not working, your cross-examination is not going to be so great, no matter how clever you are, because you're going to actually have to have some documents in your hand. You know, so everything's important. <laughs> I am curious. So now that is a, is a lawyer, are you fussy with how your documents are organized? Do you have a method? Do you do some of it yourself? I mean, how do you, I'm sure you have a ritual for how you get ready for a big dep or um, an appearance. I definitely have a ritual. I'm perfectly thrilled to have my team call through documents and find important documents or whatever. But my ritual, you know, I read everything and I've had my eyes on every piece of paper that is either going to be put in front of a witness or related to the document that's going to be put in front of a witness. And, you know, my personal ritual is I like my documents in individual file folders that I write on and that's how I work up and I put them in order and that's how I either conduct my examination, my deposition or my trial examination. You know, I don't script it out. I just, I build it on the documents that I've assembled in a particular way to develop whatever the theme of the case is. I think knowing the file backwards and forwards really helps, but do you have advice on how when you are in court, especially in front of a jury, you don't appear to be reading from your notes? And what you're saying flows out. Unless you want to appear to be reading from your notes, which sometimes you probably do. <laughs> I use the Elmo. And when I am using a document, I put the document in front of the jury on the Elmo so that the witness has it as well. And I don't have any problem if I don't, if, and if the document's not on the Elmo, I am very comfortable uh, taking a piece of paper and writing out my thought process or my bullet points of the concepts that I'm going to be introducing 
with the witness so that the jury knows where I'm going. I use more of a teaching method with jurors, whether it's direct examination or cross-examination. I like to lay out where I'm going and how I'm going to get there. And so that they can, they get a little bit of a teaser as to how it's going to work. I I find that if your story is strong and your documents support your story, the element of surprise is really all that, is not all that necessary cross-examining a witness. Mm -hmm. People have different methods and different techniques. That's just the way that I'm comfortable doing it. Well, and do you think now supervising other lawyers that um, are on the team with you, how do you go about, I mean, I would imagine you want people to do things in their own style, but it has to be a style that would work. And I can see where some people might be kind of controlling and, you know, give the more junior lawyer like a script or something like that. And that's just not going to work for that person and something else might work better. Yes. Now, this certainly the case. And, and, you know, I learned with lawyers that, you know, taught me how to do things. And I, you know, took some of those tips and went in a different direction in, in other, you know, with, with some of the ways that they did things. To me, you have to find your authentic voice. You have to find what you're comfortable with. There are many lawyers that I've worked with that are just great at being intimidating and really pushing a point in a way that is forceful and really gets their point across with the witness. That's not me, but that might be somebody on my team. And if someone's good at doing that, being sort of that intimidating sort of questioner, then I want that team member, if I know of a particular witness that is going to react in a way that I want them to react to that kind of intimidation, I need that on my team. But that's not me. And that may not be other members on my team. And I need to, I need to know when that's going to be an effective way of getting at the truth and when it isn't. So all sorts of different styles work but they don't work with everybody. So that's why a team is so important because you can really adapt to the type of witness that you're facing. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you about when you started getting the MDL appointments in your career. We'll be right back. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, 
all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, my guest is Jane Conroy, a named partner with Simmons Hanley Conroy. So, Jane, you have done many cases where you got an MDL appointment. Can you tell me where you were in your career when you got your first one and how you got it? Sure. It was the early 2000s, but the you remember the Vioxx case which um, was a Merck drug and it caused cardiac problems. It was a, a type of painkiller for arthritis and things. At the same time as Merck's Vioxx uh, was voluntarily taken from the market by Merck because of these cardiac problems, Pfizer had a, a drug, Bextra and Celebrex, that were assigned to a different MDL. And I remember becoming involved. We had several Bextra and Celebrex cases, and the case was assigned to Judge Breyer in San Francisco. I was a young, youngish lawyer. I had not had, I had never worked in an MDL before. I had had, you know, different types of medical cases and things. I had worked on the defense side, so I was very familiar with that that type of case, but I hadn't been in an MDL. And I was really very new to even understanding how one would work. And when I was in San Francisco, I was very anxious to work on the case. And I had absolutely no credentials that would allow me to be appointed as a steering committee member or anything like that. But I do recall they were looking for someone that would handle the state federal liaison function so that they would sort of figure out what kind of cases were pending in state court and what cases were pending in federal court and keep keep the other members of the plaintiff steering committee informed. And so I jumped at it and said, oh, I'd love to do that. And, you know, I learned, and I've said this to so many of the young lawyers that are in my firm and, and outside of my firm, it doesn't really matter how you get first involved because when you get involved in an MDL, and you are lucky enough to really be with the steering committee, if you are working hard and providing value, even if it's not something that you're particularly familiar with and it's, or if it's not the glory job, you can start to develop a reputation of being trustworthy, being someone that shows up, somebody that does some of the grunt work and is helpful. And you know, I will tell you, even in that case, that case progressed for quite some time. And as I was working on that case, we ended up having a bellwether assigned that was one of my firm's cases. And I ended up being the lead trial counsel for the bellwether case, even though I had, I was not even on the steering committee to begin with. And so it really is a testament to kind of just really understanding the case and the file and 
look, I'm not going to deny sometimes there are politics that make that very difficult or maybe just the way the steering committee is set up or the location of the steering committee or whatever, it's not as conducive to working your way up. But I learned a valuable lesson and I really think it holds that in most situations, if you roll up your sleeves and provide value, you will be invited into an MDL and the next time around, you'll probably get an appointment because people know who you are and they want to work with you. Well, I am curious for the first one, and I I hear you about the working hard and being in the right location, and sometimes things just happen, but I would imagine, too, you had to rally support, right? It's not like you just applied and got it. Do you mind talking about, like, how you get people to support you and say, yes, pick her? Well, it depends on the way the MDL is set up, because every MDL judge has a little different process. Some of the judges will say, I'd like to see a slate developed by the plaintiff's counsel. In that case, you really do need to, you want to find out who's filed the most cases, who's been leading the case or leading the science and has the experts. And then you want to see if, and if you know those lawyers, you know, call them and say, hey, I have a bunch of these cases. I'm really interested in working on this case. And In that situation, potentially, you may be put on the slate by those lawyers. And that's a function of getting to know other people that do this kind of work that are members of, you know, that are typically have sort of mass tort cases. And you have to be somewhat aggressive. You have to call up the folks that you know or the folks that you don't know very well, but you know a little bit and say, hey, I'm right here and this is what I can offer. You know, I have... 45 cases and they're in great jurisdictions and you really want me as part of the team because my firm, you know, is terrific at electronic discovery and my firm, I've got a lot of people that can review documents or, or whatever it is. Or, you know, we do great legal briefing. So you're going to really want us when you're in the trenches and you really have to produce great written product. So you need to look for a niche and be somewhat aggressive about trying to be a part of the team. It's tricky though. It's a political situation because certain firms like working with other firms. That's just Mm -hmm. a reality because that's who we're used to. And we all fall victim to that for sure. And then some judges, you know, just have a beauty contest and you come in and you explain what you're going to bring to the case and they pick who the slate should be. I have the impression that some maybe state court judges too, but I've heard of federal judges, they are specifically looking for diversity. Yeah, it's a terrific development and something that took a long time coming. I will tell you a quick story. Judge Selna in the Toyota sudden acceleration case had a beauty contest and invited lawyers to come in and give two or three minutes as to why they should be on the committee. And out of that group, there were some slates that were suggested. And then there were three slates. And the three slates were made up of 60 white men, <laughs> not a single woman. And it was really jarring. And I remember at the time going and speaking to the court in front of all of those individuals and saying, half of the Toyotas in this country are owned by women. And there isn't a single female lawyer that's been put forward on these slates. And it was a very, I remember at the time feeling 
very worried about the idea that I was sort of using my gender in a way to kind of get myself onto the committee, but it just seemed so wrong to me. And I was actually appointed to the committee and several other women were appointed as well, but it was a frightening moment to actually say that out loud. Years later, I spoke to Judge Selner. I met him at a uh, a more informal, not in a courtroom setting. And he said he had never even, it just hadn't even occurred to him until it was said in open court. So this idea that the the fact that federal judges are focusing on diversity is so important to us. And it just, it just didn't happen overnight. It took a long time and thank goodness it's happening. So we don't really, we don't face that really impenetrable barrier that we did back in the 2000s. And is this judge specific or is it a policy? I'm guessing it's judge specific. Well, I think it's it's certainly judge specific, but the judges who are asked by the JPML panel to deal with um, MDLs, they go to a particular training to deal with these types of cases. So I don't know if they would identify it as a policy, but I have not seen an MDL in the last you know ten years that has not had um, that the judge has not had statements about diversity for sure. And I know that after your initial MDL, you later in your career got involved in many of the MDLs involving opiates. Can you, I was curious, um, when and how did you get a sense that these were going to be very big, very successful cases with significant damages? Well, my partner and I back in 2000 sued Purdue Pharma on behalf of almost 5,000 individuals who had become addicted to OxyContin, taking it as prescribed by their doctor and according to the label. That was a long and hard-fought litigation. We ended up settling that litigation in 2007. We worked in conjunction with the Department of Justice and certain district attorneys, turned over that information, and the general counsel, CEO, and the medical director of Purdue Pharma uh, pled guilty to felony misdemeanors, and it was the largest fine ever against an, against a pharmaceutical company for their marketing uh, false representations and marketing practices and falsities to the FDA concerning OxyContin. That was in 2007. We felt like we changed the world. You know, we got the label changed. We got a lot of focus on addiction issues. We were able to, we secured significant damages for each of our personal, personally to these individuals who had become addicted. But in reality, all we had done was establish the floor for many other companies, including Purdue, to come in and keep selling opioids as blockbuster drugs. We established that You know, I'm being very cynical here, but what happened is it said, well, it's only $700 million to to do really bad things, to sell your drugs. And these are multi-billion dollar businesses. And so what we saw ensue after 2007 was the opioid epidemic just grew and the number of opioids out in the market just grew and grew and grew to a peak really in 2014, 2015 in many parts of the country. 
at that point, we were seeing, as everyone in the country was, the overdose deaths and such. And we realized that the issue in the case was no longer can we represent individuals who have become addicted, but how do we deal with this crisis in our communities? And it was in 2016 that I received a letter from a district attorney in Suffolk County, which is on Long Island in New York. And she had gone to a conference and she asked, and there were a couple of these cases around the country. She said Suffolk County would be very interested in filing some sort of a case against the opioid manufacturers because our community is decimated. We can't even get new textbooks for the high school because we have to hire new EMTs and get more ambulances to deal with the overdoses in our county. And we need more of a police force. And we looked into that and we and a few other law firms filed cases on behalf of counties municipalities in, in, in the United States under the theory of public nuisance that the manufacturers, the distributors, and the dispensers had created a public nuisance. Completely novel theory, completely novel plaintiff for a case like that. And what we were looking to do, because there's no amount of money that can actually solve this epidemic, is to put money toward abatement so that going forward, you could not pay back the communities for what had happened, although that would be nice if we could, but how to get funding for rehab and police forces and Narcan to be administered and better education of our medical community, all of that sort of thing. So it was a completely different type of litigation in a completely different direction that we and other law firms went in with the opioid situation. I feel like perhaps opioids might be the first drug epidemic where people really understand that the addiction and the deaths don't just happen to other people. It, I mean, most everyone at this point sadly knows someone who was affected by opiates. But I am curious, where you had a front seat to this, can you tell me a bit about opinions changing? I mean, specifically with people who tend to serve on juries and judges to see this is just not a problem with people who make bad decisions. This is, this is a bigger problem that affects the whole country. Well, I will tell you, when we began the lawsuit against Purdue Pharma, we could not win a jury trial. Because the attitude was, if someone became addicted to OxyContin, there was something bad about that person. There was some weakness in that person that they became addicted. It was pervasive. And we focus grouped the case throughout the country. Juries could understand lies in the label, but they did not have sympathy for people that had become addicted to the drugs. I watched that. Over time, I watched those attitudes do a full turn in the country. It was just incredible what was happening by 2014, 2015, 2016. When I was picking the jury for our New York Bellwether trial, we interviewed over 900 jurors to sit. We sat 16 jurors. Every single person, we learned early on, everybody knew somebody. The judge knew someone. 
the defense lawyers knew someone, the court officers all knew someone. Maybe it was their own child. Maybe it was a friend. Everybody knew someone. It didn't matter if you were a liberal juror or a conservative juror. None of that, all of that went out the window. It was a completely different world for us in understanding addiction. It's a disease, understanding what can happen with, you know, why it impacts entire families, why it impacts communities, why you have problems with high school students and the elderly as well. It it was an enormous change. And I think it took a while for all of the of the parties in the cases to come to that realization that it was no longer the early 2000s. And those kind of defenses that people that become addicted are bad people were not going to work anymore. So it has been really extraordinary to see how the United States, the population of the United States has changed in this particular situation. Well, and I was curious, with your experience doing jury trials in various states, has the experience taught you things about Americans who don't live in the part of the country that you do? I'm typically trying cases not where I live. And the types of cases we have when we're talking about, um, certainly with things like addiction, there are there are some geographic differences, but not so much with this, not so much with a, an epidemic that is so well known and there are TV shows and documentaries and, and things like that. There are certainly, there can certainly be drug cases that are easier to litigate in some locations versus others just because the kind of exposure certain jury pools may have. Do you mind telling me like what jurisdictions are easier than others? Well, it depends, it, you know, depending on the kind of drugs that are available. Mm-hmm. If you're in a less affluent jurisdiction, if you have sort of lifestyle drugs or plastic surgery that went wrong or something like that, it may not be as well received as something that is to help you know, with pain or to help with arthritis or things that are more prevalent in a working class community, something like that. You may have better luck in a case involving fuel or, I mean, there's a difference if, you know, California gets a reputation. California was a good place for the Volkswagen uh, diesel case. There may have been other places that may not have been as, as outraged as a jury might be in San Francisco versus somewhere else about lying about emissions. You know, it's just those kinds of things. I don't think when we really get into it and we look at jurors, there really are that many geographic or cultural differences. But when we look at the whole picture of the country, we certainly think there are stereo, you know, we always think there are stereotypes. We're often proved very wrong about stereotypes. Mm. Mm. And that's probably a really important part of picking a jury, I would imagine, or being good at it. Well, you know, sometimes it's what's really important is having is having the narrative that rings true because, you know, you can overcome a lot of jury skepticism and things like that when you really have the goods. And so by choosing the right narrative, by really looking to find something that communicates to that juror and their family what they wouldn't want to have happen to them, it sometimes really can overcome a lot of of the cultural differences you might see in different parts of the country. 
Are there times when you think you have a narrative and you're running with it? And then maybe a few days before uh, trial starts, you decide to switch the narrative. That certainly happens. You hope that it doesn't because you're hoping, because what has happened in our MDLs, and it's a very significant issue for us, MDLs take place wherever the MDL judge sits. And so we have a bellwether trial. Wherever that bellwether trial is, we do not have subpoena power over the defense executives or the defense, uh, the witnesses that maybe work for the defendant, because typically that's we're not in the in the home venue of the defendant. And so that means when we take a deposition, maybe four years before we get to trial or three years before we get to trial, I have to or my team has to prepare the exhibits and ask the questions at that deposition that will be played in front of the jury that sticks to whatever narrative I'm going to be telling that jury. So in a typical case where you know you can get a live witness or even a witness over Zoom, you have a lot more flexibility to adjust your story or change your pitch or change your theme. But when you are building your narrative four years out, you don't really have that kind of luxury. So it has put a lot of pressure on us. For example, even in the opioid litigation with the deposition, with the trial testimony, almost all of the defense trial testimony came in through videotape depositions that were being taken while we were getting discovery and looking at documents. So very often we didn't even have the hottest documents when we were taking depositions. So You know, I'm always hopeful that a judge will say, yes, it's a federal court, so you can subpoena someone to go to their federal court and we will live Zoom their testimony in front of the jury. That's always what I hope for, but we don't always get that kind of a ruling when we're going to trial. And so we have to rely on our depositions. You're involved in a somewhat new case, which is an MDL against various social media groups. And the filing alleges that the platforms are designed to encourage maximum screen time that can encourage addictive behavior in adolescents, according to the filing. Can you tell me a bit more about that case? Sure. Again, that's a case we all experience and see in our children and ourselves that kind of addictive behavior and and being sucked into many of these social media sites. That case is looking uh, with some fairly uh, interesting legal theories about how that is allowed to happen and what those companies have done to ensure that people continue to scroll with their phones. And so we are, that case is filed. It's, it is new. It's uh, was I think the MDL was set up in November or December. And so we are we are just starting out. We are just drafting a master complaint. We'll be looking at motions to dismiss probably over the summer by the defendants and also starting discovery. We have some early discovery that has begun. And of course, the defendants will be learning more about our plaintiffs as well. But it's a very exciting case to be involved in as we start to look at addiction through social media. And do you think that is another area where I think even five years ago, it might be harder 
to get that case through because people would think, well, it's the parent's responsibility to, you know, monitor their child's screen time. But as we know now, I think it's it's not that easy in many in in many instances. Would you agree? I certainly do, and I think much of that remains to be seen. What kind of attitudes and beliefs are out there throughout the United States about what's a parent's responsibility and what will cut through any parent trying to impose control? Why it's so difficult? So I think I think there's work to be done, but that's what we do. You know, that's what. That's what we hope to do is uncover the types of methods and the types of ways that a company may use to circumvent what in normal society would think might be a parent's responsibility. So, you know, I don't think I would have believed back when I first saw the label for the Oxycontin for Purdue, I don't think I could even grasp that a pharmaceutical company would lie in an FDA label. I didn't think that could even be true. And in fact, it was it was more true than I ever could have imagined. And, you know, we dug into that and we learned so much. And now all of that is public and it's almost considered not unusual at all. And that you have to have those kinds of checks and balances to be sure that companies are telling the truth about their product. So I have great faith in the way a case as it develops or cases as they develop shed light on the way things can happen and and the way even without even without evil intent the way things can happen that bring about terribly damaging results. And so you know we keep plugging and we keep looking to continually make the documents, make the testimony, make the theories available to the public, available to journalists, available to to scholars so they can look at these things and understand it better. That has been very successful in the opioid litigation. A lot of understanding about addiction, a lot of education, a lot of understanding about how marketing works in the pharmaceutical industry. So we just keep working for that type of transparency. Jane, that's everything I have for you today. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered. Asked and Answered.